Um, what day are you going to do? What was the title? I'm starting, uh, or I'm doing day three, and the title was Be a Barnabas. Be a Barnabas. Yeah. Be a Barnabas. Okay. So what phrases, verses, or portions of Scripture stood out to you, and why? So in Acts 9.27, the little phrase, but Barnabas, caught my eye. It says, but Barnabas took him to the apostles. And then in Acts 11.25, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year, They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And then the last verse in 30 said, And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So those are the the passages that stood out to you. And so what then observations did you make? And before you go into that, I wanted to share one thing. We talked about this in our leader meeting last night. Um, Whenever you get to that question, number two, about your observations, and then number three, about the application, don't feel like you're locked into only what you wrote in question number one. If you're a rule follower or you're like super OCD, you may be like, well, I cannot observe anything else. It's, It's observations for what you find for the whole entire passage. So don't feel... There's no right or wrong way to handle it, okay? So with that, share some of the observations that you found. Some of the observations I found were that when no one else really trusted Saul, Barnabas did. When people were fearful, Barnabas is the one that came to his defense. When Saul went out preaching, Barnabas is the one that went looking for him, and when he found him, he stayed and served with him. Uh, They served side by side together for a year in Antioch, um, and together they earned so much trust that when they needed to send relief, um, it was sent through Saul and Barnabas together. Cool. Very observant. Thanks. (laughs) Do I get bonus points? Yeah, you do. I'm going to put a little star on her page. Application. What did you find? What applications do you felt that that were to be applied to your life? Um, I noticed that, you know, Saul had a bad past, uh, and people had reason to be mistrusting of him. He had one friend that believed in his transformation and what God was doing through Saul. He had one friend that defended him, that helped direct him, that served alongside him, and ultimately Saul became the man that God intended him to be. And so then I asked myself two questions. Um, I asked, am I a Barnabas? Do I serve alongside? Do I defend those that need to be defended, um, and then also who has been my Barnabas. Um, I have people like that in my world. So, Awesome. Would you be willing to share your prayer? I know it's really personal, but... What if I said no? Then I'd read it out loud to y'all. I'm just kidding. Yes. <laughs> She'll read it. I have the hunch. I prayed, Lord, help me have eyes and a heart like Barnabas that sees the transformation you're making in someone's heart and not just their past mistakes. Help me be the one who defends and serves alongside people who just need someone to believe in them. Thank you that you've surrounded me with people who do that for me. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jessica. Thanks, guys. Thanks for being here. This whole soap thing is completely doable. And I'm sure that you guys, um, in your discussion time today, I'm sure that you started experiencing that, that, that God shows all of us so many different things, right? Was that cool? Dynamic, interesting things that you're like, hey, man, I didn't even think about Barnabas during, <laughs> during that day. That's so awesome that you did. Um, I hope that you found some of that today in small group. Before we get started on lecture, which normally when you come in, like I said, a lot of times we'll have somebody coming up and sharing a little bit about what they study this week. Um, and then I'm going to go into our text for the week. Well, this week, I just before we got started, because I know we have a lot of new faces here, I wanted to share a real quick, um, I, I just want to get you ready for next week. So if you would, open up your book and let's flip over to uh, three, page 3-2. And so that begins the homework for next week. So when you leave here, you're going to go home and you're going to do the homework for lesson three. Okay? Now, how cool does it look? There's color, guys. This is a classy joint. You got color. It's cool, right? I, it looks a little different from your homework last week, does it not? Yeah, a little. Um, remember the way we lay out our homework. And for those of you that weren't with us um, last week, I gave a big introduction. If you didn't get a chance to listen to the lecture, take some time and do that. If not, then just go back and read the introduction in this book, and that'll kind of tell you exactly what our objectives are and how we're going to study God's Word so you don't feel, you know, just kind of lost. But I did want to show you guys this because the pages look a little different moving forward. What we do is we give you how many days of homework? Thank you. You can see my hand. Good job. How many questions each day? Four. Four questions, five days of homework. No problem. 
The way we lay it out is we give you one day of homework and it has two pages. And you can see on page 3-2, the left-hand side is what we call the resource page and the right-hand side is what we call the soap page, okay? I wanted to show you guys this because moving forward, we are going to put all your resource pages are going to have this cool little graphic-y, visually appealing, awesome little page format. And here's the thing. Do you remember what I told you about these, these, these parts and pieces? It's all optional. Okay, so when you look at this, don't be like, what, i got to fill out that whole circle of, of corresponding scripture and blah, blah, blah. It's completely optional. We listen to you when you take a Bible study here and you fill out a survey at the end and you say, hey, I want to go deeper and I want to study more and there's things I want to go farther and this wasn't enough, then we wanted to give you an opportunity. So there's going to come weeks where you're just like, forget it, man, I'm not doing that. And then there's going to come weeks where you sit down and, and you start reading some other translations and God just opens things up for you and you just want to write it down. And so that's what these pages are for, okay? I wanted to bring your attention to that because I also wanted to show you at the back of your book, go ahead and flip with me, there's an appendix. There's kind of like a cardstock page that says appendix. We're going to look at this really super duper fast because you can read and you get to take this home. It's like our special gift. Well, you'll notice in the appendix, the very first section I have there is your very own Bible. It's like the greatest tool ever. Um, I wanted to bring you guys, uh, your attention to the fact that, I, I don't know about you, but I'm being real honest here. I've had a Bible for a real long time, okay? And I, I, I would say probably 90% um, of the time that I've had a Bible, I haven't fully used all the tools that God has, has provided in the, in the covers of this book. And so I want us to use everything that he gives us in this book cross references table of contents anybody love the table of contents if you are at, i want to tell you right now you are at a bible study that we don't pretend to know where everything is okay use your table of contents it's a fabulous wonderful thing a concordance that's in the back and that's where you can look up different phrases and, and passages and words that that mean something or that have um, a certain context okay there's also cool stuff like timelines and charts and outlines those are all awesome and I know a lot of times we're like, oh, man, I got barely got time to read. Okay, then just read. Then just read and pray and, and soap, write the four questions, okay? But I wanted you to have an opportunity to use these tools and, and fill out that resource page if that's something you wanted to do. Go ahead and flip to the, um, well, you see on the bottom of, of, of appendix page one, you see down there I said I wrote Blue Letter Bible. Anybody familiar with the Blue Letter Bible app or the website? Anybody? You're about to be, so there you go. Here's the thing. It's a really cool tool, and I, I highly recommend you go on there and start clicking around. Um, I tried to give you real simple procedures here, and you can look, on, look at those on your own. But basically, there's, there's really three ways that you can use this in our Bible study. One is you can, when we sit down this next week, and the first verse we're going to look at is Ephesians 1.1. Makes sense, right? We're going to do that. You're, you want to go look up that verse on Blue Letter Bible and just get a feel for, for what it shows you. You type in at the top, search the Bible, type in Ephesians 1.1, and then it comes up. You have all of um, each of the scriptures comes up on the page. And the cool part is, this is what's so cool about this tool, is you can use this first tab. It says interlinear. It's just a fancy word for I'm going to give you the word and then I'm going to give you the, the Greek. Okay, it's just kind of that's what that is. And all of a sudden, each word, you can see there on page three, each word comes up and you see off to the right, you have the original Greek of that word, which most of us don't care about that. But if you do, oh, also bonus, you can click on the little speaker and you can hear the dude say the word out loud. That's super fun. Do that. I highly recommend it. But anyway, what you can do is you can see that there are words like take the word apostle, for example. You see over to the right beside the word phrase, you see it's what's called our Strong's Concordance number. Okay, All you got to know about that is that number is clickable. When you click it, it brings up all kinds of information about that word. That's all you got to know. You can click on that word and you can see underneath what comes up. There's all these different things. And if you keep scrolling down, it tells you this is another place where this word is used. Our guy Paul, our author of our book... He, I mean, excuse me, of our letter. He wrote how many letters? Yeah, I heard it real loud and proud. Thirteen letters Paul wrote in the New Testament. Paul wrote a lot. And so what's really interesting is you'll click on a word like this and you'll scroll down and you'll see all the different places that that is used in the New Testament, sometimes the Old Testament. It's really interesting. 
So that's what that Blue Letter Bible will do for you. You flip to the next page, there's more information there you can read later. You can um, take different versions of the Bible, compare them. You can also click the third, ref, the third tab called cross-refs. And if your Bible, like mine, doesn't have cross-references in it, you can go to Blue Letter Bible and click on it, and you can see like all these different cross-references and what they mean and why they're considered cross-references. Okay? It's not as complicated as it sounds. Take a little time and mess around with it because I'm telling you it will take you deeper, okay? So with all that said, I just want to encourage you, if you decide that you want to spend time, you know, clicking around and filling out some of these little optional things, awesome. If you don't, that's okay too. Your leader is not going to ask you about that unless you just want to share, okay? All right. With that said, let's go backwards and let's look at page 2-12. And that's where I have a page, a blank page. Mine's not blank. Yours maybe won't be later. That I've given you there so that you can write lecture notes if you want to. Well, I'll tell you this. This week was kind of different, right? And if you're new with us today, you're probably like, you sat in that discussion group and you're like, wait, I thought this was like an Ephesians class. I thought this was Paul's letters. Well, we started this last week with a whole week of homework on the book of Acts. And the reason we did that is because we were wanting to follow the life of who? Paul, Saul, whatever, same thing, right? Last week I shared with you that, um, that letters are so interesting, right? And like, I know if you're like me, you probably have a letter somewhere in your house, whether it was written to you or, or something that you wrote, um, that matters. And I have letters from my, from my grandparents. So my grandfather was on a Navy ship in World War II, and I have one of the letters, and it's framed on my dining room wall, and I love it. But you know what? I probably wouldn't love it as much if I didn't know the origin of where that came from, if I didn't know the circumstances in which he was going through when he wrote the letter to my grandma, if I didn't kind of have a grasp on what was happening back home when he wrote the letter. And so that's what we wanted to do with this first week of homework is give us this background on this dude, Paul Saul, figure out his scene because he's the author. Once we understand him, we understand what's happening back in Ephesus where this letter was written to, then we step into Ephesians 1.1 and we have knowledge and we have context, right? So you're in the right class. It's totally fine. Next week we're going to get into Ephesians. It's going to be really, really cool. Um, but this week I wanted to spend a little time, and it's it's... It's a lot, and I'm going to move fast. But I wanted to give you a picture of Paul's story. I wanted to paint this picture of this guy, Paul. You got little bits and pieces during your homework, and you, you probably pieced some things together. And if you've ever studied the Bible before, you may know some of the other things. But we're going to piece together Paul's story. We're going to look at four truths that come through that story. And then we're going to finish with some words from Paul, our guy Paul. Okay? So with that... If you have your Bibles out, go ahead and open them up to the books, the book of Acts. And we'll probably uh, hang around like Acts 7, Acts 8, and we'll kind of move around there. And I'll just follow along with me. Last week, we went over the background of the book of Ephesians. And we talked about who wrote it. Who wrote it? Come on. I just said his name like six times, right? Paul, Saul, Paul, Saul, Paul. In the book of Acts, you saw it written as Saul, didn't you? And we talked a little bit about this. I want to clarify this one more time just in case you didn't hear it. Saul, Paul, same guy. Okay, same guy. Here's the difference. Um, Saul is actually uh, his Hebrew name. Saul of Tarsus, Tarsus being where he, he's from, his family's from. Paul is his Greek name. He was, um, he was a Roman citizen. And this is what's interesting. And I posted a picture on Facebook. I forgot to bring that map with my slides. But um, it, it's interesting about this time period. Right now, there, there's relative peace amongst um, God's people, the Hebrew nation, the Israelites. And um, they're living under Roman rule. Okay, so there's a Roman Empire right now, and there's lots of different groups of people all over the place that are within that Roman Empire. So that's why he was born of Hebrew descent, but he was a Roman citizen. That being said, whenever we read about him in Acts, he's really still doing the Jew thing, right? He's doing the whole Israelite thing. He's doing the whole Pharisee thing. We're going to learn about that in a minute. Whenever he has his transformation on the road to Damascus and he dedicates his life to the ministry of Jesus Christ... It's very clear very soon that his job, what God has prepared him for, is to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Gentiles, you know what Gentiles are? 
They're people that are not of Israel descent, Israelite descent. So probably all of us in here, Gentiles. So you got Saul, this guy that has this Hebrew background, and he knows everything, man. And we'll talk about that in a minute. And then he becomes a believer in Jesus and starts going by Paul because that's his Roman name. Does that make sense? Same guy, okay? All right. Who uh, Paul, Saul, wrote it, written while he was imprisoned in Rome between A.D. 60 62, written to the church at Ephesus. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Circulated to a lot of churches in Asia Minor. It was written as a letter. Begins with, uh, to the church of Ephesus, and it ends with a salutation from our guy. Okay, We're going to read about that. It's broken into two different parts. Remember, the first three chapters of the book are really doctrine. They're really like, okay, this is what we believe as followers of Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus did. And then the last three chapters, which I love, are separated by a word, therefore, and it says, okay, all this stuff Jesus did for you, this is what we believe, therefore, here's what you do. This is how you go take it and live your life. That's the book of Ephesians. So today, what we're going to do, we're going to roll through this dude, Saul, this dude, Saul, Paul. We're going to talk about some things about his life. The way I wrote it out, you write it out however you want in your notes or take no notes, take a nap, whatever you want to do. I, I kind of was going to move through a bunch of like events that happened in his life. And my thought was if you want to write the event and then off to the side you want to write a little description of some of the facts. I'm going to give a lot of historical facts and I'm going to say a lot of numbers and it's going to go fast. So write whatever you want to write. But I want you to look at this as a whole story, okay? As a life that God takes and transforms and uses. We all want that, amen? Saul. So the very first time we hear of this guy is when? Do you remember what happened first? I know there's a slide behind me, so whatever. At the stoning of Stephen. At the stoning of Stephen. Here's what I want you to know about this event that happens in Acts 7, beginning in Acts 7, ending in the beginning of Acts 8. This was the first mention of Saul, okay? And the way we first hear his name is this. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named what? Saul. And what's cool about, about that little sentence is it gives us a little glimpse into the picture of who he was before he knew Jesus. This is what you can know about that. When they lay down their garments, these folks that are about to brutally murder this man who's speaking out because Jesus is the son of God. What they're doing is they're, they're rolling up their sleeves and they're taking off their jackets and they're bringing it over to their guy Saul and that tells us this, that this was a big mob. If they're bringing their jackets and dropping them in front of Saul, he is right in the middle of the action. He's trusted. He's, he's more than likely an upcoming leader in the Pharisees and, and, and this sect that is going crazy because they feel like everything that the God of Israel has said is being defiled by these new believers in Jesus Christ. He's right in the middle of it, okay? And Saul approved his execution. We see that's the other sentence we see during this passage about what's happening here. Saul is standing by approving this. Now, the thing you need to know about the stoning of Stephen, and we're not going to go into it too deeply because I know you looked at it in your homework, um, when you see anything about a stoning, and Paul gets, has the same issue going on later when he's a believer in Jesus Christ. It's not a government execution, okay? Remember, the, the Roman government is in charge of everything, right? That's not a government execution. This is a mob scene. And what happened here for Stephen was this was between the, rule, the rulers were Pontius Pilate. Remember hearing about him? Where'd you hear about him? Back when Jesus, right? Back when Jesus was executed. Okay, so Pontius Pilate, there was a change in leadership between Pontius Pilate and the new leader. And so while this was happening, there was chaos going on because everybody was losing their minds because of this Jesus guy and these Jesus followers. Okay? So what was happening was we have Stephen. He's dragged in front of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin are the ones that are basically the leadership of, of the Israelite people, okay? So he drags them in front of these leaders, they, and they charge him with blasphemy. And you know what blasphemy means? Blasphemy means that um, there's a severe disrespect of God. You know what Stephen's severe disrespect of God was? Calling Jesus Christ the one and only Son of God. And so they take rocks, and they beat him to death, and they kill him. And you read about that. And here's our hero of the story, standing lot, standing beside, approving all of it. Saul. 
That's where it all begins for him. And then we go into this whole period during Acts 8 where he tries to destroy the church, remember? He's been approved to drag off believers and take them to prison. The term um, in Acts 8, I think it's Acts 3, I'm not for sure, it says that he made havoc. And you know what that, you know what that meant in the, in the original Greek? He made havoc. It means this, a term to describe destruction of a city or mangling of a person by a wild animal. This is, this, is not, this is insane what's going on to these believers. He's a Pharisee, I mentioned before, and a Pharisee at the time, I mean, the, the way they were looked at is they knew everything. They knew God's law. They, they followed it, and they were zealous about it. And so when they, what was crazy about it, though, if you think about this, so actually they were kind of following their flesh. They were focusing only on their mind, and they missed the fact that God sent his son to satisfy the law that they've been trying to keep up with for all these years. They missed it. So you got these zealous people like Saul, Paul, hanging out, taking people down. They don't like Jesus. They don't like what he's saying. They missed it. They have no need for a savior. So Paul lived spiritually blind as a Pharisee, and he relied on his own righteousness and his own religion. Anybody know anybody like that? I got this. I don't need a savior, man. I got this. My, everything is okay. I, I don't know about you. I've known Jesus since I'm 15 years old, and I still go back to this Pharisee life often. I got this. Well, that's who Paul was. A person, a mangling of a person by a wild animal. That's what's happening. Damascus Road happens. He's on the road to Damascus. This is where he's going to go start arresting all the believers. Okay, So this is probably like A.D. 34, FYI, in case you want to write that down. About A.D. 34, this is in Acts 9. A moment on the road changes the history of the world. A moment on the road changes everything. I love in Philippians 3, 12, and Philippians is another uh, letter that he wrote about the same time, close to the same time he wrote Ephesians, 30 years after his conversion, so way, way down the road. But you know how he looks back on this event? You know what he says? Oh, just, I love this. He said, God apprehended me. I love that. You know, last week, one of the, one of the principles that we talked about was that, that God chooses us. God chose Paul. It's not like Paul was hanging out on his horse, riding into Damascus with that piece of paper in his hand, going to arrest and ravage some people, and he's like, hey, you know what? I'm going to give this Jesus thing a shot. No. God apprehended him. He knocked him off his high horse, literally, right, onto the ground, and everything changed. I don't, I, I will say this, and I don't know a lot of things, but I do know this. If you're in this room right now, I will, I will, I will, I would stake my life on the fact that you have a God who loves you so much, he's chasing you. And whatever that looks like, if you know him as your savior, awesome. If you don't yet, all right, well, we're going to pray it all over you, and we're going to pray that this transforms things in your life, but you have a God who wants to apprehend you. That's what happened on the road to Damascus. And and so he has this encounter with Jesus, right? And he retells it. Did you notice I kind of gave you two versions of it in your homework? First, you saw um, what the author of Acts wrote. And then in, in Acts 26, you see Paul's actual words. And that's where he says this. He quotes and says that Jesus said this to him while he was on the road. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And if you're not familiar with those terms, like, I'm sure you all say that all the time, right? Like, hey, kids, quit kicking. Yeah, no, it makes sense to me either. Um, it, we, we, I think we talked about it in Psalms or something. We, we went over that. But it was interesting to me that this phrase is used here, and I went and looked it up. And, and apparently what this is is that a goad is like a tool. It's like a thing that an oxen... Um, what, the, what the farmers goading their oxen in the field use. And it's like this... Um, it's a, it would have been a common expression. They would have understood it, right? We don't really totally understand it. We just kind of skip over that part. But, but this is what I thought was really interesting. So he says that Jesus said that to him, right? He said, you've been kicking against the goads. Well, goads were typically slender pieces of timber, blunt on one end and pointy on the other end, okay? Farmers used them, and they pointed, the, er, pointed in to urge the stubborn oxen into motion. Anybody ever been a stubborn oxen? Don't raise your hand. Christine's like, I am. Uh-huh. Me too, man. 
Occasionally, the beast would kick at the goad, right? Whenever you're prompted with something sharp, you're going to kick back. And that's what would happen. The more the ox kicked, the more likely the goad would stab into the flesh of his leg, causing greater pain. Now, something to think about here. We don't get much more than that. That's all we get. But when I read about what, what kicking against the goads means, my first thought is like, this is not a one-time thing. Like, stay with me. If Jesus says this to Paul, how many times has he been being prompted and he's been kicking back and pushing back? Was Paul standing there watching Stephen be executed by a mob and feeling that prompting? I don't know. Was he on his horse headed to Damascus? Was he having second thoughts? I don't know that either. We don't know that. But what we can glean from this is that there is, a, there is a father in heaven who sent his son that loves us so much that he doesn't give up. It's not like you get this one shot and then you're done. If you're here today and you're breathing air under the sun right now, you've got a shot at spending the rest of your life transformed for Jesus Christ. I love that. Until the very last breath, we've got a shot, right? So we know that Paul is a stubborn guy, and he's probably been kicking against um, um, some intuition or some message or, or some prompting from the Lord for quite a, time, oh, quite a while. And now he's on the ground, and he's blind for a couple days, three days to be exact. Okay, Numbers matter in the Bible. I won't go into all that, but three days he's blinded. Then he finds out in, in Acts 9 that, that, that he's got this vision and that God's going to send this guy named Ananias, and we're going to talk about him in a minute. And he comes and he restores his sight, and all of a sudden there is radical transformation in the life of Saul Paul, right? Radical. What is the first thing he gets up and starts doing? Do you remember? Preaching, but preaching how? Boldly. Preaching boldly. How many times did you see that word? I'm like, enough already. We got it. Boldly. Okay. The thing that's so cool, though, is, is I wonder about Paul. I wonder if I suspect, okay, I suspect his personality, there was probably a lot of boldness, right? Just kind of what we sort of know about him already, but now God's going to take that and he's going to use it for his glory, right? Because now when he's radically preaching and being bold and hollering at people and doing all this thing, you know what he's saying? He's saying one thing now, one thing. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the Son of God that we've been waiting for. He's preaching to all of his people and saying, guys, we've been looking for this, and we missed him. Well, the thing that's crazy about this period of time, right, the disciples were still afraid and uncertain, except for who? Barnabas. I love that. I love that Jessica saw that and brought that out, that you have this one guy, but Barnabas. This one guy that stands up in fear, he's not swayed by judgment, he knows there's a really messy, ugly history that involves some brutal violence and terrible things, and yet he believes in a faithful God that can transform anybody. Is that good news to anybody in here? I mean, I'm, I'm going to assume you weren't standing by while someone was being stoned to death recently. However, how many times do we stand by and listen to people be murdered through gossip and rumors and awful things on the internet? How many times do you click like for something that is just like, how do we even do that? That convicted me, man. I don't know if it made you feel that way too, but boy, I love the fact that there are Barnabases in the world that will stand up, even though Chris is a mess and messes up all the time, that will stand up for me. The interesting thing is we go into the life of Paul knowing that he takes three missionary journeys, and I have a map that's going to come up, and you'll see. All you really need to know about this map, you don't have to, like, I mean, just here's what I want you to notice. There's a lot of arrows and a lot of lines, okay? And they all represent where he was going. And I'm going to roll through some quick facts about these journeys so that you kind of have this, this picture of Paul and what his ministry looked like about 13 years after he was converted. Now notice I just said that, that the journeys begin about 13 years after his conversion on the Damascus Road. It's interestingly, right? Because in, when we read it, we just kind of read it like boom, boom, boom. Okay, his eyes, his scales fell. Okay, now he's preaching. He's on a boat, shipwreck. You know, it wasn't like that. It was 13 years of preparation, 13 years of being prayed over, 13 years of preaching. 
God took that time and molded this man into who would be the messenger to the non-Jewish world. And those people are the ones that, where the gospel just went like this. So the first journey, it started in A.D. 47. Like I said, it was about 13 years after he was converted to, Christian, to be a Christian, okay? 13 years. It was 1,400 miles. It was 10 cities. And he went with Barnabas and another guy named John Mark. Okay? When they went, they hit all these different cities and they preached to the Gentiles and the Jews in these different cities. But jealousy began to abound among the Jews because of the popularity that was happening. Okay? Everybody wanted to come hear this Paul guy because they knew who he was before. Well, as, as, the, uh, as all that was happening, there was a lot of violence that occurred, and I'll talk about that later. Um, but, but Paul and Barnabas declared that they would be now preaching primarily the gospel to the Gentiles instead of to the Jews. And so their focus became shifted to a new group of people who hadn't known who Jesus was and hadn't known all these truths that God had shared with them to be watching for when the Savior came. So it was this fresh, amazing new group of people who had ears open to listen. Momentum built, okay? Well then, so 10, ten cities, Paul and Barnabas and John Mark, and they're doing their thing. The next journey, the next journey was about A.D. 50 or 52, so that's about 16 years after his conversion, okay? This is where you saw the term that Paul began to disturb the cities. I love that. Like That was one of the things I wrote in my observation section, disturbing the cities. And I thought, man, I don't do enough of that. We need to be disturbing the cities, not living amongst those who don't believe and looking exactly the same. Paul came in and he shook things up. So the second journey, it went like this. It was 2,800 miles, doubled the mileage there. They hit 16 cities. This time, he didn't have Barnabas and John Mark. They actually had a disagreement about John Mark, and so now Paul has new traveling partners, and now he's traveling with Silas and Timothy and Luke and these two named Priscilla and Aquila, okay? At this time, he's going back to a lot of the cities he hit the first time, and he's revisiting them. He's seeing how they're doing, and he's instructing and guiding and leading and, and, and visiting them and encouraging them. And at this time, this is when he, he gets imprisoned. And we talked about the prison guard and all that, right? Remember that when you read in your homework, the prison guard who the, everything broke open and they stayed? Okay, we're going to get back to him in just a minute. But the interesting thing about journey number two is this is his first time to the city of Ephesus. First time to the city of Ephesus. And at the time, they began to establish a church. Priscilla and Aquila, the people that were traveling with him, they, they were the ones that established that church, okay? Second journey. Third journey looks like this. A.D. 53 to 57, we're not sure exactly when. So now we're getting close to 20 years after he's been converted to, to Christianity. This is where we see a lot of that. He's speaking boldly. I love that. I mean, he's, 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 you know, 20 years into this thing now, and he knows this is the truth, and I've got to tell everybody so they don't stay stuck. He travels 2,700 miles this time. He hits 11 cities. He's traveling with Timothy and Luke now. And three years, he pauses in the city of Ephesus. He hangs out with our, with our homies in Ephesus that we're going to learn all about, for three years, he loved them. He spent time writing some of the other letters. Remember I told you he wrote, a what, 13 letters? So that was when he was in Ephesus. He did some of the writing to some of the other churches. This was interesting at the time while Paul was pastoring that church in Ephesus. The city of Ephesus, if you'll remember last week, I said it's on like a harbor and there's three major trade routes that go right in there. Okay, so like one of the main things that they would trade there were these pagan idols um, for the Rome, Roman goddess uh, Diana, okay? That was like, like business there. So all of a sudden, three years, this church is gaining momentum, gaining momentum. The city is more interested. They're less interested in the idol worship and it's causing a problem causing a problem. Well, he stays there for, for three years. He starts to head back to Jerusalem at the end of this journey, but this is what's so cool. At the end of this last journey, he stops at Ephesus one more time, and you know why? I love this. I didn't know about this until I studied this week. 
He wanted to come say goodbye to the elders at the church of Ephesus because he loved them. And so he stopped there and he gave them a plea to trust in a life of Jesus. He gave them a promise that he will witness to the very end of his life about who Jesus is. And then this was the coolest part. He got down on his knees and he prayed with the elders of the church. That's how much he loved this church. And so later, when we get into next week, we get into the words of the letter from Paul. Now you know he has, he is invested in this church and he loves them. And he writes them a letter toward the end of his life to encourage them to keep on. And that's what we get to read. Well, he goes back to Jerusalem in Acts 20. Then about Acts 21 through 28, if you want to go skim it later, there's, there's a lot of problems. There's a lot of things. He's causing a ruckus. All kinds of stuff is happening. He's doing miracles, raising people from the dead. This is also what's happening. I'm just going to kind of say a whole bunch of things because we don't have time to go over all the detail, but I want you to hear this. Paul, Saul, the life transformed. This is what he experiences taking on this job that he's doing for the Lord to share the gospel with the Gentiles. We got Paul, in 2 Corinthians 11, he, he lists out a whole bunch of stuff that he's encountered in his ministry, okay? And this is some of the things he says. Intense physical pain, he's beaten up countless times, many times near death. He was in prison often from the Jews, his people, guys, his family, his friends. Five times he received 39 lashes from them. Three times he was beaten with rods. He was pummeled with rocks. Three times he was shipwrecked. He was immersed at sea at night and a day. He endured difficult journeys throughout. He struggled in the waters. He fought off robbers. He's been at risk by his own countrymen. He's been in danger from the Gentiles he came to set free. He was at risk in the city, in the wilderness, and in, sea, in the sea. He was betrayed by those closest to him. He experienced brokenness. He was exhausted, sleepless, hungry, thirsty, cold, and naked at times. He was worried and anxious daily because of his deep concern for the churches. And he was given a thorn in his flesh, which he calls a messenger from Satan to hinder him on his walk. He was abandoned by his friends while he was imprisoned. And that's the life of Paul. The thing that blows my mind is that in Philippians, he says this, and I feel like the more we, I mean, we've just barely spent like this much time on the life of Paul, but you know what he said in the book of Philippians in, in chapter 1, verse 21, he said this, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You take a guy who has who, 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 who is like well thought of in his community. It's comfortable there. He knows everybody. He's on the higher end of the ranks of leadership and he's going places. And he encounters Jesus Christ on a dirt road and he takes on this life willingly. Well, after Paul was imprisoned in Rome, which is where he actually writes the book of Ephesians that we're going to study he was, um, our, our tradition and extra-biblical documentation tell us that he, was, um, he died a martyr's death and that he was beheaded by Nero. And this is what I find interesting. In the book of Acts, chapters 21 through 28 document all of these problems and all this amazing, all the stuff he went through, but he kept going. And in the end, he dies this way. And you know what I thought was interesting? We see no details about how he died. We get no last words from Paul. And there's no account of like a sad processional and people mourning the loss of this great saint. That's Paul. So now when you sit down and you open up the book of Ephesians, I mean, I open it now and I feel like it breaks my heart because I'm thinking he's writing to encourage me. He's writing to encourage these people in this city who started this amazing church that he loved so much that he stopped and dropped on his knees to pray for. That's Paul. So what do we take from Paul's story? Like, what, I saw four things for sure that I want all of us to walk out of here today honoring the life of this man, Saul Paul, and what he accomplished for the good of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. Four things. Number one. We can choose to live God's praises regardless of our circumstances. 
We can choose to live God's praises regardless of our circumstances. That came to me because I read this quote by Charles Spurgeon, and it goes like this. You cannot always be speaking his praise, but you can always be living his praise. If Paul was sincere, think about it. If Paul was sincere and his conversion was genuine, then Christianity is true and reliable. There is no other answer for how he lived and what he endured and how he died for a cause that resulted in him losing everything. Paul's life, we see his life laid out. I don't know what his words were always, I don't know if they were always positive and encouraging. I'm just going to go out on a limb here. And when he got struck by a snake after he'd been shipwrecked, I'm going to say he probably wasn't just praising God at that moment, maybe. You get snake bites in your life, real or literal or figurative, and it is hard, isn't it, to find the words to praise the Lord. However, our lives can praise him despite our circumstances. Have you been tempted to only share Jesus with other people whenever your life is steady and comfortable? I have. I mean, I'll tell you what, my my close people know this. When things get hard, I hibernate. But you know what? When I live out the praises, even though things, um, even maybe I can't utter a word, sometimes that's where things change. That's where people see, oh man, she's going through that and she can still come to church. She can still come to Bible study. She can still read her Bible. How is that even possible? Sing when you're in prison. Preach when you know that even if you don't feel like it. Invite people into your life when things aren't perfect. Regard obstacles as opportunities to overcome in front of a watching world. Because I'll tell you right now, you are here on a Wednesday morning at Bible study. And unless you were sneaky about it and didn't tell a single soul, there are people in your world who love you and know you're here. And you know what they want to know? Why does it even matter? If she's going to go study this, what is it going to change? Is she different? Swim upstream. The doubters are loud, but find a Barnabas to stand for you. And whenever the doubters are loud and people are picking up rocks, then you go be a Barnabas for somebody else. The second thing I saw um, through Paul's life was this. Every saint matters to the story. Every saint matters to the story. In Acts 9, chapter 9, verses 10 through 17, we learned about that guy, Ananias. I mean, he gets like seven, seven sentences, essentially. His whole life is summed up in this one little moment in time. The thing I found so interesting about Ananias is this. Well, first of all, I use the word saint here, and I want to clarify something. There are some... Um, backgrounds and belief systems that use this word differently. We're going to use the biblical definition of what that word is because you're going to see it a lot in the New Testament. The word saint, that, is, that means people set apart for the Lord, okay? The kingdom of God, people set apart for the Lord. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are considered a saint. That's what that word means. When you see it, that's who he's talking about, believers in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. It's a Greek word. I promise it's based on that definition. But every saint matters to the story. Ananias was most definitely a saint. We know he came from Jewish background, but he was a believer in Jesus. And this is what I love. He was available. Do you remember what his words were when the Lord reached out to him and told him what he had to go do? Do you remember what he said? Here I am, Lord. He wasn't excited about it. He was not. He was not thrilled about this idea because he tells us in Acts chapter 9, I've heard many things about this man, Saul, right? How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And God's like, yeah, 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 I know, I know. Trust me. So Ananias was available, but it didn't mean he was excited about what God was asking him to do. God goes on to explain that he is a chosen instrument of mine. Saul, like think about it, this is just like a hot minute after the guy's been standing there polishing rocks for people to throw and kill Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And now you have Ananias who knows all of that, okay? And you hear Ananias having to walk over here and go, yeah, but he's the rock guy. And God says, but he's a chosen instrument of mine. 
And this is what I love about Ananias. This is what happens. This is the sentence we get. So Ananias departed and entered the house. He just did it. It didn't make any sense. There has been a million times in my life where I feel like I have not been a good Ananias. Where I know that the Lord is calling me to do something or say something or, or be involved in something. And I just, it is not convenient for me. And I am not cool about that. And so I'm going to pretend like I don't hear all that. I want to be this saint. I want to be this guy who says, all right, I'm in. That's what Ananias does. You know, think about this. When Ananias enters the scene and does what he needs to do because he's being obedient to God, what happens immediately? Scales fall immediately. Isn't that cool? Because of Ananias, Paul gained community and encouragement. He gained physical and spiritual sight. He gained the Holy Spirit in that moment came on him. He was raised up. He was baptized. He gained food, strength, rest for physical healing, and he got seclusion and solitude for spiritual growth. God had a plan for Paul, but God had a plan for Ananias, and every saint matters to the story. Are you available to God even when you're not excited about it? Guys, I just got off of teaching Ecclesiastes, and let me just tell you, if you know me, I wasn't excited about that. <laughs> but I said yes. Jill Briscoe says this. It's a favorite slash hated quote that I have of hers. Whatever God asks of you, you answer, yes, Lord. And then you think of Ananias saying, here I am. Every saint matters to the story. The truth, the third truth that we found in the, in the life of Paul is this. No person or situation is hopeless. If you write nothing else on your paper, you write no person or situation is hopeless. No one is hopeless. If you still have breath under the sun, there is hope. Amen? We serve a God who will swoop in and apprehend people. And I suspect he's apprehending some of us today. There's nothing that God can't do. Jesus died for every single one. Every single one. Don't let anybody tell you anything different. It doesn't matter if when he's doing the apprehending, if they turn their back and say, not now, I'm not interested. He still died for that person. Every one of us he died for. Paul's prison guard and his family felt hopeless. You think? Isn't that story like cuckoo crazy? Like all of a sudden, you know, the chains fall and everybody, they break free. And it's kind of like you're reading it thinking, oh, yay, Paul's going to be free. It's going to be, yay. But, but he didn't, did he? He stayed. And the reason that, that the prison broke open was, was to set somebody free who wasn't even locked up. And in that moment, he was so wrapped up in what he thought he, see, he saw and what he thought he understood that right in that moment, he was hopeless because he picked up a what? sword and he wanted to end it all but Paul says hey man we're still here we're not going anywhere and then you see because of the witness of Paul and Silas in that prison and the crazy town stuff that they were doing by hanging out that this guard said all right I gotta know tell me everything and I love how how we get to hear that that he was no longer hopeless, but neither was his family. And you think about that. That guard was transformed in that moment to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And we see that his family came alongside him and did the same thing. And now I wonder, what did the generations of that family look like? We serve a God who opens prison doors not to release, but sometimes to keep us locked up to set one prison guard free. We serve a God who goes to a well to meet an outcast to set her free. We serve a God who detours to walk among the sick and tells them to take up their mat and be set free. We serve a God who takes down a guy named Saul who's a persecutor so he can raise up a preacher named Paul and bring the gospel to the Gentiles across the world. We serve a God who sends his only son to the earth, regardless of what we've done, what we are doing, and what we will do to live and to die just for us. Who or what situation are you believing is hopeless in your life? He's with you. He's in that prison with you. He's not leaving. 
The last thing I want to share with you before we close is this. That God wastes nothing. God wastes nothing. Have you had moments, or are you in one right now, in this moment, where God seems really far away? I have. I will. Well, let me tell you this. Take Stephen's horrendous death, for example. It's heartbreaking, really. It just, it just, it's horrible, isn't it? But Stephen's death paved the way for the radical expanse of the Christian church. Do you realize that? That one event caused Gentiles, I mean, excuse me, caused, caused Greek-speaking disciples to scatter to the ends of the earth to share the message of Jesus because Stephen died. And the other thing that's interesting is as Stephen is dying, he prays this, Lord, forgive him. Anybody else ever hear anything that that ever happened with anybody else who was dying on a cross, maybe, perhaps? Lord, forgive him. And then a minute later, we have Paul rising up to spread the word to the Gentiles. This horrendous death paved the way for a radical expansion. God doesn't waste anything. Acts 14.22 says this, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. I'll tell you what, the kingdom of God is not now. It's, it's, it's right now. It's not later on when you die and then you're going to go to heaven. There's gold streets. and I, mean, I don't know what that's going to look like. But I'll tell you this, it's very clear that the kingdom of God is now. It's in this moment. When God seems the farthest away, he may be laying the foundation in your life for the greatest display of faithfulness he has ever shown you. He doesn't waste anything. I tell you what, I'm excited because now I have an understanding of who our guy is. Do you have faith in Paul's Christ? Have you had a, a, a knock-off-your-horse moment? Well, maybe you're going to. I'm glad we're here. I'm glad we get to do this. I'm excited to open the book of Ephesians with you. Welcome to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. I'm going to pray. We're going to go. Father, thank you, for, um, thank you for this life that you laid out for us in a way that we don't just read this like a, like a dried-up piece of history, but, God, this is a living, breathing, live book. And thank you for Paul. Thank you for the mess that is Paul's life, but also the dedication and the beauty in everything he sacrificed to make sure that the word got out that everyone knew his Savior. God, I pray that we can even be just a, a tiny little bit of, of preaching boldly. We want to wreck some cities for you, Father. Show us how. In Jesus' name, amen. And if you have kids, hug the child care workers and tell them they're pretty and tell them you love them and I'm sorry. Okay. Okay.